Well, in this Christmas season, it's always great time to, to revisit truths that reveal to us really what Jesus has done for us. You know, Christianity is a presuppositional faith. What do you, what do you mean by a presuppositional faith? That is, it's, it's based on specific assumptions that have been handed down to us over traditions, over the centuries, through the scriptures that have been given to us. And don't be concerned about traditions over the centuries because a lot of Protestants are kind of funny. We believe in the New Testament. Yes, you do. Where'd you get it? It just, it came from Jesus. Well, yeah, that's good. It didn't quite happen that simply. That actually it took four centuries, three and a half centuries to establish the authority of what letters and what gospels to actually receive as authoritative. And so there was a church that preserved all this, and we're the recipients of the traditions of that church. The church is the one that actually said, you know what, we need to establish a festival celebrating the birth of Christ. Was he born on December 25th? Well, no. Okay, but they chose a day to do that. Chose a day, you know, so it doesn't matter if it's right the same hour, the same moment, the same day, the same month. We're, we are, we're celebrating the event. And uh, we've, we've had these things handed down to us and, and living testimonies of people who have been absolutely transformed by this message of the reality of the truth of what Jesus had done for us. These truths that we so believe are really centered on the person of Jesus Christ, that the New Testament actually claims as God that has become man. So at Christmas, we celebrate the anniversary of God becoming man. You know, one of the, uh, you know, if you look at the hymns of Christmas, and I'm going to call them the hymns of Christmas. We call them the carols of Christmas, but, but they're really hymns of Christmas, you take silent night. Silent night, we declare, is a holy night. And we sing joy to the world. Why joy to the world? It's a holy night, and it's joy to the world because God has become man in that event. That's why it's, a, it's not just a night. It's a holy night. That's why it's joy to the world. The Lord has come in the form of a servant, in the form of a man. God joined the human race. God came together and became the God-man. And there's a whole purpose and a reason for him doing that. You know, one of the earliest confessions in creeds, and a creed is a, is a public declaration of faith. That's what a creed is. The earliest creeds of the church, all the way back to the early church, and you can see it in the New Testament, is this, is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I want you to open up your, your Bibles to the book of Colossians only because I'm going to read in and out today, verses out of the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians that actually Paul wrote from prison. It's a prison, what's called a prison epistle. He writes to this church in the city of Colossae, a church that he actually didn't start himself. One of his disciples that got saved in Asia Minor in Ephesus started this, a man by the name of Epaphras. And, and he, and uh, that Paul was writing this church because he was concerned about a, a heresy that was starting to, to move in. It was, it was known as an early Gnostic heresy. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And you kind of had these special revelations, and they got into weird philosophies and, and, uh, and deep knowledge about the invisible world. And, and uh, they came up with all sorts of unique things the next couple of centuries. But it started creeping in with some legalism and really 
de-emphasizing the person of Jesus, that he, that he wasn't the son of God, that he was one of these in-between agents from heaven, between heaven and earth, but wasn't God himself. And they were getting into worshiping angels, and they were getting into worshiping laws and rules to somehow make them holy. And Paul's deeply concerned. He wants to get their focus in this letter back on Jesus. And he makes a lot of declarations in this book. And before I get into even our scriptures today, I want to introduce just this book. He makes a lot of declarations about the central person called Jesus Christ. Remember, the earliest confession is Jesus is Lord or Jesus is God. That's the earliest confession of the church. And he makes statements like in chapter 1 and verse 15, he says he's the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. What is God like? Well, what was Jesus like? And what is Jesus like? You'll know what God is like. Some say Jesus put a face on God. I mean, he is. He is the perfect representation of God. In verse 16, it says, for by him all things were created. So not only are all things created by Jesus in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, that Paul says he's not only the creator of it, but he's the Lord of it. He's over all creation. He goes, he goes on to say in this declaration in verse 18 is he's actually the head of the church. And he is the head, verse 18, chapter 1, of the body, the church. Okay, he's the head of the church. He's the head of City Harvest Church, every local church in Clark County, over the church of Clark County, over the church of America, over the church of the world, over the church that ever has been, and the church is going to be the eternal church. He's the head over that. That's why it's always dangerous to throw a lot of rocks at the church. You know, if my wife was going out to the car and there were some people outside my driveway throwing a bunch of rocks at her, I'll let you know what's going to happen. It's not going to be good. The police will be coming after something takes place. <laughs> you just don't mess around with the bride of Jesus. It's, it, he's the head of the church. No, Bob, it's, a, it's full of all sorts of stuff. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But it's still his church. There's mixture. Yes, there is. But it's still his church. There's corruption. Yes, there is. But it's still his church. It's still what he works through. It's still what he uses. It's weak. Well, he still works through it. Does he justify everything he works through? No, but he's still, that is the chosen instrument he works through. He's building it. He's adjusting it. He's correcting it. He's healing it. He's moving it. Don't mess with the church. He's the head of the church. And then Paul says in our, our, in our salvation, you know, first in verse 9, he says in, in chapter 2, verse 9, he says that Jesus is the fullness of God in body form. Verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then Paul said, when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to what we need from Jesus, he says that, that you are complete in him. You are complete in him. You don't need to add thing, anything to your faith. You don't need to, you know, you don't do something different to have salvation. He is the one who's saving you. He is the one who's made you qualified to even be here today. You're complete in him right now. Just say to the person next to you, you're complete. <laughs> so you don't need to kind of become into some secret cult or go on this pilgrimage or keep these ascetic rules or, you know, don't eat, you know, don't eat shrimp or something. I don't know why I said that. Shrimp gives me gout. But anyway, 
They're complete in him. So this is what Paul's doing. He's bringing us to the, the central person of Jesus. Now, I want to conclude our series today, This Is You, by, by talking about what Jesus done in coming and becoming a man and his mission and what he accomplished because he came to rescue us. And I want to talk about you are rescued. And I, and I got the same verse. We're out of Colossians 1, 13 and 14. I'm going to read out a number of different translations. This translation, GW, you know, I didn't even see in my research GW. I think it's God's Word. It might be the God's Word translation. I think, I think that's the, the name of the translation. It just says GW on my computer. But notice this. God has rescued us from the power of darkness. Now, I want you to notice something. Has rescued. Everyone say has rescued. Not going to rescue. He has rescued. And has brought us. Everyone say has brought us. He's not going to bring us in the, in the Amplified. We're going to read this in the Amplified too today. Transferred us. He's not going to transfer us. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. His son paid the price to free us. That's what's called redemption, which means that our sins are forgiven. I like Eugene Peterson on this in the message. God rescued us from dead end alleys and dark dungeons. Good. Poetic. Come on, how many people have been down some dead-end alleys? How many people have found yourself, excuse me, in some dark dungeons? But he has, <clears throat> he has rescued us from us. He has set us up in the kingdom of the Son. Not going to set us up. He has set us up in the kingdom of his Son. He loves so much. The Son who got us out of the pit we were in. He rescued us. Actually, the word rescue, as you're going to hear, comes, that concept means get drug out of a pit. He got, he, he got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. He got rid of them. We'll talk about how he does that. The Amplified, which kind of expounds on everything, for he has rescued, once again, has rescued. He's rescued us and has drawn us to himself from the dominion of darkness and has transferred. He's not going to transfer. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have, we have redemption because of his sacrifice resulting in the forgiveness of our sins and the cancellation of sins penalty. And so we're going to concentrate on three words today, or three, yeah, three words. I'm going to say it that way. First, that he has rescued us. Second, that he has transferred us. And third, we have, we're not going to get, we have redemption. Now, notice has and have are all in the past tense. And they're not just in the past tense in English. They're in the past tense in the Greek. It is something that has already taken place. It's something that's already a fact. It's something that's already a reality in your life. Remember, we have started this series, This Is You, with this premise that if you don't know who and what you are, you'll never do what God's called you to do. You won't, you won't know it. You won't see it. I had a track coach. I've talked to him about many times when I was in high school. His name was Zeke Zimmerman. He was one of the hardest coaches I ever, I ever you know, was trained by. And I only had him one year. It was my freshman year. I was kind of a wimp my freshman year. That's why, probably why he was so hard. But, but, you know, Zeke was always the type of guy that pushed every athlete to his biggest potential. 
I'll never forget one Saturday workout. He made us run two miles. And then in those days, we didn't do things in meters. We did it in feet. He made us run 410-yard sp sprints. We had to sprint 110 yards, jog, sprint 110 yards, jog, sprint 110 yards, jog, sprint 110 yards, jog. And he timed us on every one of our one-tenths. And then he made us run two more miles, and then we had to do it again. And at the end, after all that running, those last four 110-yard sprints, he added up our individual times in all four, added it up, and he looked at me and he says, McGregor, this is what you can run the 400 in. This is what's in you. It was about 12 to 15 seconds faster than I could do it currently at the time. But this is what's in you. And I think God does the same thing. There's certain things that he has done for us where he's saying, this is what your potential is. This is really who you are. And who you are and, and what you are is what you're going to become. This is what's in you. And so, you know, there's a, there's a 400 meter run in you. There's a, there's a personal record high of some weight you're gonna lift. There's a, there's a pull bolt height that you're gonna reach, spiritually speaking, because it's in you, because of what he's done. So let's talk about the first concept. He has rescued us. Now, I want to talk about the worldview of, of, of Jesus and the Apostle Paul specifically. It's in the other apostles hold the same view. But their worldview is this, that a person named Satan rules the world, and man is his captive. Now, Paul brings this out in the book of Acts. You can hold your finger in Colossians. Go to the book of Acts with me. You hanging in there with me? I don't want to get too theological and, and, and heavy concepts, but I, I want to educate you theologically. Acts 26, verse 16 to 18. Now, what Paul's doing here is that he is rehearsing to King Agrippa his conversion. And he says here in verse 16, I'm reading out the new King Jimmy version here. But rise and stand on your feet. Now, who said that? Jesus is say, said that to Paul. Paul's rehearsing, meeting Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. Stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Notice that God only appears to us for purposes. Not to give you goosebumps. Not to give you chills. Not just to give you gold dust. He appears to you for purpose. For purpose to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. I'm going to send you to people you're not going to be all receptive to you, Paul. I'll deliver you from them. To do what? To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power or the dominion or the rule of Satan to God. Now, I'm just going to stop right there. From the power, the dominion, and the rule of Satan to God. So in this worldview, Satan rules the world, and man is Satan's captive. Now, the view of the, the view of this view of the invisible world bringing sin and, and sickness and, 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 dece and deceit and death was really basically strengthened in Jewish theology. And it was the foundation for the early church during what's called the intertestament period between the time of Malachi and John the Baptist, which is about a 400-year period. In those 400 years, Israel suffered incredible, cruel, oppressive, and demonic atrocities. Even one conqueror came in and sacrificed a pig in the temple. 
They suffered poverty. They suffered violence. They suffered oppression. And during that time, they, they had a great, great theological hope that Jesus, not Jesus, but the Messiah, they didn't know his name was Jesus, the Messiah would come and they would deliver them from this satanic oppression. So when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is here, they understood that language because that was the language of their expectation. And when Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, you know that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. In other words, they knew there is satanic oppression over us, and Jesus is, the Messiah is going to come with his kingdom and take these chains off of us. So this is the, the world view. It was a time of satanic activity, and there was a great longing for the coming of God's kingdom to deliver them. Now, the New Testament teaches this about you and about me. It teaches us that basically that we are a helpless puppet in the hand of a personality until we are forgiven, until we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Paul said this in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Just listen to this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, I've been around a lot of dead people in my life as far as funerals, memorial services, and seeing bodies sitting there. They're unresponsive. They're not aware of my presence. They're clueless to me. They're dead. And so when the Bible says we're dead in our sins and trespasses, that means we don't have a consciousness of God. We're not aware of his voice. We don't have his mind, his values, his heart. We're, just, we're, we're dead. We're unresponsive. We're separated. We, and, he, and Paul goes on, we're following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience. So there is a spirit, a prince of the power of the air that's leading the cultures and the philosophies and the values of our cultures globally. That is the biblical worldview that Jesus comes to invade and rescue us from. You know, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That's language of deliverance. That's language of Jesus coming to rescue. You know, the word rescue has with it, as you see in Eugene Peterson's version of Colossians 1, has with it a, a, a picture, an idea of someone actually being drugged out of a pit. We're in a pit of bondage and sin and lies and, and separation from the life of God being destroyed. And Jesus comes and he comes to pick us up and, and bring us out of that. So when Paul's describing this conversation to King Agrippa with this, with, 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 uh, he's describing this discourse he's having and meeting Jesus, Jesus called him to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Paul saw the influence of Satan being the very thing he had to confront and opening the eyes of people. He believed that the, he had to pull down strongholds in people's minds. Now, a lot of people say, you know, you got to cast down every argument and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God in your mind. you got to take control of your mind. And that's true in application, but that's not what Paul was saying when he was writing that. He was saying, my ministry 
is anointed by the Spirit of God, and I got to pull down these arguments in people's minds that are exalting themselves against the knowledge of God. Where are these arguments coming from? They're coming from the prince of the power of the air. They're coming from the one who holds people in his rule. And so because of this, sin is the result from the very beginning. We believe air. We believe lies. We experience deception. We we experience death. We experience separation from God. Now, we can't argue that there is someone evil in the world. You might be wrestling with this whole concept that I have of the invisible world that influences the nations of the earth, but this is, this is a core of the Christmas message. You can't argue that there's evil in the world and there's someone behind it. You know, I just did a little research yesterday on just how many people have died in the last hundred years from oppressive governments, violence, and war. Not starvation or droughts. I'm talking about from the acts of violence from man to human beings that government is involved in, whether it's war or just violent acts towards oppressed people. You don't even have the specific stats. You have anywhere in my study from 160 million to 203 million people in the last 100 years. You're not talking about a few thousand people. You're talking about a couple of hundred million people. You know, there's just things we can't explain. We can't explain the decapitation of ISIS terrorists somewhere around the world. Rape and destruction or someone shooting up a campus or just some of the senseless things that have taken place, even in the United States of America. You, there's, no, there's no sense to, you know, planes flying into towers and the whole, the whole scenario, what took place on 9-11 and just the carnage and, and the atrocities of things that have taken place in war and torture and martyrdom. Voice of Martyrs believe there's over 100,000 Christians that are martyred every year globally for their faith for just believing in Jesus. These are not, I don't think you can explain these things in a psychological terms. I don't think you can explain these things in logical terms. But you can't explain these in evil terms. Someone evil. You can't explain the Third Reich. You can't explain the Holocaust. 10 million people annihilated. You cannot explain that in any rational way outside of someone evil beyond Hitler, beyond a philosophy, something behind that. The Bible teaches that, really, that man was originally given authority over the earth, that that was our right. We were given the earth as stewards to rule it and to walk with God in that particular reality. Satan's right to rule the earth came legally when man sinned and forfeited his right to be the ruler. Satan lies to us. We disobey God. God then must separate himself from man because we can only rule with God. We can't rule apart from God. And Satan comes in legally because of our own actions, and he takes over the universe. When, when Satan shows Jesus in his temptation, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, just worship me, he had under control the kingdoms of the world under his control. Now, God is ultimately sovereign. God is up to something. That's why God can take evil and he can bring about good in the midst of that. 
But, but that wasn't just, he wasn't just fabricating something biblically that he couldn't give over to Jesus. So God moved out of the scene. Satan moves in and took over on the grounds of man's sin. Now, the reason I say the grounds of man's sin, because man gave him a legal ability to do that. Because when man separated himself from God, he lost his right. Now, through the cross, I want you to listen to this. Man has given back his authority, and Satan must legally actually give the earth back. Man is forgiven. He's made alive by God's Spirit. And Satan has no claim on you, and he has no claim on me. I know this is kind of a little bit heavy, but we've got to understand who we are. What was taken away from man was given back to man by Christ's sacrifice. This is what Paul meant, and I want you to turn with me in Colossians 2, 14 and 15. In Colossians 2, 14 and 15, Paul says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So the death of Jesus is not just the forgiveness of my sins and your sins, but the death of Jesus means restoration. The gospel isn't just God sent his son to the earth and kind of spanked him and beat him up for us so that you could be forgiven. That's how we preach it. God loves his son so much, he brought him down here, beat the snot out of him so you can be forgiven and pray to receive the sinner's prayer right now. It goes way beyond that. God sends his son, and out of great love and to correct which is crooked, he has to, they have to endure this thing called the judgment of God upon Jesus so that not only he would forgive us, but he would restore us. The gospel is not just what Jesus has done, it's what he's also going to do. Jesus is going to come again. And we're going to get, if you don't like your body right now, be of good courage. You're going to get a new body. Some of us who are growing older appreciate that truth. Things just creak. It takes a little bit longer to warm up. I get out of bed, I have to stretch for 10, 15 minutes sometimes before I feel good. I just, I'm like a rubber band all knotted up. Didn't used to happen when I was a kid, but you know, you grow old, you're like an old dog. We get a new body. We get a new earth. Do you know there's going to be a new earth? You know where heaven's going to be? Heaven's going to be on earth. In other words, there's a restoration of everything. What was lost is recovered. That's good news. It's announcement of what happened, but it's announcement of what's going to happen too. And all of it's good news. We're being restored. Now, what's this thing where Paul says in verse 15, I mean, verse 14, having wiped away the handwriting requirements against us. You know, in those days, if you had debts, today you know, we have debts, we just kind of live with it. Yeah, I got, I'm in debt. I got 5,000 in debt, 10,000 in debt. I got debts. In those days, you were in debt. I mean, it was serious trouble. You could go to debtor's prison and you could go into slavery. And they, they wrote out legal contracts of your debts and handwritings that was signed. When Paul's talking about he took away the, the, the note that was against us, he's talking about our debts that we owed God because of our guilt. He took that away from the cross. He took away our debt. 
We're debt-free when it comes to God. You can't bring up to God what you, how you failed, what you did wrong, because the debt has been paid. Point is that we were helpless and ignorant. Point is that we were deteriorating. We were crying out and dying spiritually, physically, morally. And Jesus came and saved us. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ, Paul said. You know, you take the, the, the Christmas hymn by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Listen to these verses. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild, he lays his glory by. In other words, he becomes man. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. He came to restore you. He came to bring life to you. Born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. He has rescued us. He's also transferred us. I'll speed this up now. He's transferred us. That's, that's, this word transfer is actually it was a word used in ancient write, writing to, to describe the deportation of a conquered people from one country or territory to another. Actually, Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, uses this particular Greek word describing the Assyrian conquest of northern, the northern kingdom of Israel and transferring all the, all the Jews, all the Israelites to, to Assyria. He uses this word, transferred. It's something that takes place like that. It says about Enoch and, and um, in Hebrews 11:5, by faith Enoch was taken away so he did not see death. In other words, he was taken away immediately. He was transferred immediately. He was moved instantly from one place when he walked on earth to another place in the very presence of God. And so when Paul says we have been transferred, that means that you have been trans transported. You have been deported instantly. This transference isn't a gradual thing. This transference is an immediate thing. It's not that you're becoming a Christian. It's not you're becoming a child of God. It's not that you're becoming a follower of Jesus. It's not that you're becoming a believer. You either are or you're not. You are immediately, when you believe in what Jesus did for you on the cross and trust that for your salvation, you are immediately deported from one kingdom to another kingdom. Now, what kingdom would you rather be under? The one kingdom has deception in it, lies, destruction, accusation, condemnation. The other kingdom has love, no condemnation, pointing things out you got to change, but encouraging that you can change it, has love involved in it, is encouraging you, brings life, speaks truth to you. The other one speaks lies to you to destroy you. One brings life, one brings death. What kingdom do we want to be in? We want to be in this kingdom. And Paul says it's an instant thing. It's already a reality. Now, some of us may not know exactly when that took place, but I guarantee every one of you had a point when it did take place. Now, I can name mine. It was March 12, 1976. It's where I made Jesus the Lord of my life. Now, I've not always honored him as Lord. But I made him in a commitment and believed he died for me on the cross at that particular point, made a commitment to pursue him. Something happened to me. I was instantly transferred from one kingdom into another. Now, what does this mean that I'm in the kingdom of the son that he loves? 
What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. It means someone did something for you to make you qualified for that to take place. Jesus died for you. Second thing it means, it means that you have been forgiven. You are forgiven. You should be at peace about that. You're forgiven. You're a forgiven people. You got bad things on your rap sheet, but you're forgiven. You're forgiven. It means that you're loved and watched over by Jesus. You're in his kingdom. He is a king, but he's a loving king. He watches over you. You're not being watched over by someone who's out to destroy you. You're, you're being watched over by someone who loves you. You're being changed by his spirit. You have all the privileges and resources and favors of heaven at your disposal. It's yours now. Doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter even, I'm going to say this, how you always behave. Doesn't matter where you're at right now. This is a reality. It's a legal reality. You have been transplanted. You have been deported. It's already a reality. He's placed you in his kingdom. You may be miserable about what you did yesterday. You're in his kingdom. You know, Sue and I went through some pretty hefty inheritance issues here a couple of years ago. And we learned a lot about inheritance laws. Actually went into court and lawyers and the whole, whole scenario. But here's when you're going through an inheritance dispute. It doesn't matter how you feel, how they feel. Doesn't matter what Uncle Charlie said. What rules in court are the documents. Whatever the documents say. Our lawyer says it's the documents that settle the case. It's what the documents say. The documents are the highest authority on what takes place here. Nothing else. Up to that time, it was all sorts of fuzzy this and accusations and blah, 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 blah. Our lawyer just said, cut to the chase. It's the docs. The end. Well, that's the way it is in the kingdom of God. Something legally took place. You were transported out of one kingdom, and now you're in another kingdom. You have been rescued by the death of Jesus. And that handwriting note of all the junk that you've done, it's been taken away. It's done. Settled. And the power of God's Spirit is in you now to walk out a life of obedience with Him. But then, it also, He has redeemed us. You know, as we read the God's Word's translation, it says He paid the price to free us. Now, redeem means this. It means a legal transaction took place. Just like an inheritance. Inheritance takes place at the death of somebody. Because of the death of Jesus on the cross, something happened for you. Jesus paid the ransom fee for our freedom. Now, Satan didn't set up that ransom fee. God set up that ransom fee. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4 says the soul who sins, that soul must die. And then in the laws of even redeeming things in the Old Testament, buying things back, there was a law that no person devoted to destruction may be ransomed. It must be put to death. So if there's a death penalty on something, you can't ransom it. There was a death penalty on me and you because we separated ourselves from God because of our own behavior, our own belief, our own stubbornness. And the penalty for that was death. God set the ransom, and God paid the ransom. A legal transaction took place. Jesus gives his life and sheds his blood, and we get freedom. What an exchange. 
Now we live in the reality of that. That was my whole point today. Worship team, why don't you come on up here? You live in the reality of this. It's not that hope someday I get in the kingdom. You're in the kingdom. It's not that, man, Jesus, man, he's got to rescue me. I'm in a pit. He's pulled you out of a pit. At least I don't feel like it, and sometimes I don't act like it. It's a reality. You got to start grabbing a hold of it. He's rescued you. He's transferred you, and he's redeemed you. The price for your sin has been paid in full. Now notice this. This is all about what Jesus has done. This isn't a, Bob's coming up here as a kind of a public motivational speaker. Go off and do these three things today. Here's your practical steps to walk this out. Here's how to be a better husband or a wife. Now there's places for that. This isn't advice today. This is a declaration today. And the declaration is that you have been rescued, you have been transferred, and you have been redeemed. That's the reality. Christianity is not all about what we do and our little practical application. Sometimes it's living in the reality of what the Bible has revealed that Jesus has already done for us and already a given reality. Amen? So with that, would you stand to your feet? Let's sing this song.